0: Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Helena Rosenblatt at the City University of New York. Helena is one of our leading intellectual historians, and she has given us such pathbreaking books as uh, Russo and Geneva, published in 1997, and Liberal Values, Constant and the Politics of Religion, published in 2008. She is also the editor of many volumes, notably The Cambridge Comp- Companion to, to uh, Benjamin Constant, And her latest book is called The Lost History of Liberalism From Ancient Rome to the 21st Century, published with Princeton University Press in 2018. And this is the book we're going to focus on today. So Helena, would you mind starting by telling us what motivated you to write this book?
1: Absolutely. First, I'd like to thank you very much, Max, for inviting me and for that very generous introduction. What motivated me was really, um, at the beginning, Um, I wanted to understand the connection between two political theorists. My first book and dissertation, uh, as you mentioned, was on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and the second was on Benjamin Constant, who is now recognized as a founder of liberalism. And I wanted to understand the connection between these two, um, and who are they both have very different relations and influence on the uh, on uh, the history of liberalism, Benjamin Constant being a critic um, but a respectful one and um, then as as I started to read around you know thinking about this, I realized that there was there was no history of liberalism available with the kind of span and scope that I thought that the topic deserved. I mean, it's such an important concept for us, uh, liberal democracy, and even today, um, all the discussions about the crisis of liberalism and so on. I wanted to uh, write then um, a big book also. I mean, not a big book, but on a big idea. I wanted to get away from writing just a book about one thinker in context And something broader, uh, perhaps with some relevance. Um, And then it was just a fortuitous um, circumstance that an editor came to me and said, uh, pretty much the same thing. You know, Helena, there's no book on this. There's no big book uh, covering the whole period on the history of liberalism, and you're the person to do it. So, so when I started to look into it more, um, I noticed that there were disparities in uh, and even contradictions in how uh, this word was used to this term liberal democracy liberalism and uh, for example i mean as you know in europe and the rest of, uh, and most of the world liberalism in colloquial parli- parlance everyday speech means uh, small government deregulation generally whereas in america it means almost the opposite you know big government government regulation And so I wanted, you know, I wondered, how can this be? They're all supposed, it's all supposed to be one, stemming from one liberal tradition. And I thought, let me see, and and let me see if I can sort this out. Um, And and that's pretty much what made me embark on this project. It was challenging, it was fun, it took me a while, but uh, I kept that motivation going.
0: Fantastic. And your book is called A Lost History. Um, the lost history of liberalism and one of the key arguments of the book is that this—that um, the history of liberalism is not exclusively an Anglo-American history but also a German and a Franco-Swiss one. So b- building on that, could you please summarize the key arguments uh, of the book for our listeners?
1: Sure, uh, I'd be glad to. There are several arguments uh, in the book and they both and they come all, I would say, from the, the method that I use and uh, um, which is different from the one that has been habitually used I do not speak of a canon of great thinkers I think that we need to reboot our discussion, I found that that approach is actually anachronistic, that people tend to have a personal definition of liberalism and then go back in time and read um, a selected few great thinkers and sort of stitch them together in chronological order to justify, legitimize their view of liberalism. I wanted to do something that I consider more rigorously historical and not anachronistic. So I, I fell upon, or I, I, just, I said, okay, let's think of it as a, as a concept, as a cluster, a constellation of ideas, and um, uh, and trace it actually, begin by looking at the word. I found that that was the way to go, just to keep me kind of honest and anchored on this historical perspective. Um, and um, And then, as you said, one of the exciting discoveries that I made is that this notion of an Anglo-American myth, uh, starting perhaps with with John Locke or going as far back as the Magna Carta, um, the idea that it's really rooted in in English and then American history, that America is the great now expositor and the first maybe true liberal democracy and all of this is actually a myth. If you trace this word liberal and you look at what was called liberal at the time and who defined themselves or or titled themselves labeled themselves liberal um, you will find that the political meaning of the word um, for example liberal party this notion of a liberal party um, was for it first existed in spain or or in sweden as uh you might know we are competing over this the origins of liberal party sweden and spain um uh, uh, but it, it it stood for a certain um cluster cluster of things and then when did liberalism um one uh, was the word liberalism coined, and what, would, was that, uh, what did that stand for? Well, none, these words did not originate, the concepts did not originate in England or in America. Liberalism as a concept and as a word was, was coined in France in the wake of the French Revolution around 1813. Uh, it came to America as a description of American politics and also of English politics. It became a, like a political term very late like in the beginning of the 20th century, according to my, my research. And um, so, so that was one of the arguments, that it comes, it came out of the French Revolution throughout the 19th century. It was associated with French revolutionary politics, France's successive revolutions, the word even when it was used to mean something political in England and, and in America, it was often spelled with an E at the end or rendered in italics to kind of um, accentuate its foreign origins. And sometimes it's dangerous uh, uh, qualities associated with French revolutionary Jacobin policies and the, the danger of this. Um, the second main uh, discussion an argument that I make is uh, what you also mentioned is the German influence on liberalism. The first liberals were mainly concerned with uh, dismantling the absolute monarchy that what, what we might call what we do call the throne and altar alliance in France and instituting a constitutional monarchy Uh, that recognized individual rights, the rule of law, civic equality, and a number of rights, correct? But um, towards the middle of the 19th century and towards the, and and later, um, when the effects of the Industrial Revolution became clear, uh, the kind of endemic poverty people were seeing in the cities where people did not seem to be able to rise up, they were stuck in in this thing that was also referred to a new word called pauperism, Some German ideas became um, popular. People started to read um, a certain group of of German political economists who were advocating a more humane economics um, intervention to help the poor, to give them the opportunity to, to raise them up with things like um insurance uh, factory legislation um uh, loans uh new ways of of lend- lending the money and so on to, to get them back on their feet and this um became what's called reading this these sources and and of course also looking at the new circumstances uh european liberals whether they were french or english Uh, began to speak of a new liberalism, a liberalism that was more interventionist, uh, more regulatory. And that's actually then when we see two streams of liberalism uh, arising. One that stuck to the old model, even maybe made more extreme, more emphatic, that really liberal economic policy, liberalism meant Free markets, no regu- you know, very little regulation, laissez-faire of goods and people, and no- as little government regulation as possible. The other stream advocated um, intervention and more regulation, and that's what we see today, right? We see these two streams, and they're arguing amongst themselves about what is true, true liberalism. Now, maybe the third argument, uh, major argument, is that it was this new liberalism imported really from england that came to america as late as the early 20th century and became current um in the political vocabulary um and soon they dropped the word new and it was just liberalism so very very late but because of the two world wars and the rise of the Anglo-American alliance, the need uh, to tell um, college students and soldiers, American and English ones, what they were fighting for, uh, it started to become and kind of advertised or taught as an Anglo-American tradition, uh, what um, uh, America and England were fighting for. Um, Then with the Cold War, and this was also with the rise of fascism and um, rise of, of communism uh, and the Cold War, it became imperative to show, you know, we're not totalitarian. This word totalitarianism, by the way, was coined in the 1930s. Some um, other um, really exciting scholars have, have shown. And so then American liberalism gets defined very much against this. Uh, we are not on the slippery slope to totalitarianism as Hayek Friedrich Hayek claimed, and Mises, and these people who said, like, don't go there. Uh, stop with this new liberalism, because it's it's going to lead us to this collectivist um, government uh, philosophy and an interventionist socialist government. Uh, and so liberals in America uh, began to define themselves against against this and, and emphasized more than ever individual rights and partic- against the government, and more, um, in particular, property rights. And, and, John, and John Locke becomes a founder, um, understandably, and read, of course, in a certain way. They wanted a safe ancestor, if you will. Um, they wanted somebody uh, who they could use uh, as a find. That That's really when it became a, a, a Americanized and, and called a tradition.
0: Excellent. So, so that's um, that's great. And what really comes through in, in that answer is how much this history and this book crosses borders, linguistic borders, national borders, from Europe to up to America, um, starting with Roman history, English history, Scottish history, German history, Swedish history, um, Francophone history. Um, so would you mind saying a few words about the particular challenges um, that come with writing this type of transnational and long durée history? And, and if you have any advice for other historians who perhaps would like to attempt uh, doing something of a similar ambition?
1: Well, it took me years, uh, frankly. I, ha- I was very much a fan of the Cambridge method. Of the Quentin Skinner uh, approach, if you will, my first two books were really contextual um, studies of uh, each of a different great thinker, really placing them in their environment, their historical times, what questions they, um, the problems that they wanted to address, and so on. So, but with a with a con with a concept like like. Um, like liberalism uh, that doesn 't really work, uh, so you know how, how it doesn 't work. I still wanted to do a rigorously historical uh, take a rigorously historical approach to the topic um, but of course I needed some 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 other method and uh, I fell upon uh, conceptual history actually a friend of mine Mel Richter who's a great great scholar um, now has passed away but uh, was constantly whispering in my ear "Begriffsgeschichte, <laughs> begriffsgeschichte, you have to do that so um, I have to say that I started out with a more traditional approach I thought I kind of instinctively thought oh I'm going to I'm going to do you know a chapter each on what, who I recall who I consider the great thinkers of the liberal tradition and so I, I studied and this is why it took so long because I started out with that approach and I wrote you know and I studied again John Locke I studied all these different thinkers and then suddenly I said like well hey wait a minute Well, it started first, like I started to, like, who am I going to include? Benjamin Constant, Madame de Staal, should I include Wallstonecraft? Who who should I include in this, in this? And why would I include? Is it just, I've decided that these people are, are um, the, the founding fathers, the part of the canon of liberalism was, you know, and, um, and I realized, you know, John Locke didn't call himself a liberal. He didn't know what liberalism was. It didn't exist, you know? So, so. So so I I started to say, all right, I'm going to adopt this conceptual history approach and I'm going to actually to make myself really rigorously historical and keep myself rooted in what was liberalism at the time. What did liberal mean? When was the first liberal party formed? What did that mean? What did liberalism mean? I had to I had to look at the word, the history of the word. So that's what I did, and you know lo and behold, there are many new um ways of of uh, examining this now with word searches it's super exciting uh, you can do it from your own study and um, and, and so that's that's uh, one of the challenges I of course did an enormous amount of reading because I needed also the context to understand the politics the so the the the, the religious politics and so on of the countries that I was examining and um and then, then once I read, uh, wrote it up, um, I found that I'd re- written a very academic book, and my Princeton editor told me, um, Helen and I think this book could have a a larger, uh, broader audience. And okay, it's good the way it is. We can print it like this. But this is very academic. Too many quotations. uh, Too much repetition because you're constantly showing us more and more quotations. I was so excited when I found these words, you know. So I say, oh, it means this in France. It means the same thing in Germany. It means, you know, as I'm following the meaning of the word. Um, She said to me, drop that. And so I, I tried, and it was so hard for me, um, with the academic code of methods and atmosphere that I had appreciated and been part of, but I, did, I, I rewrote the thing three times. You know what happens? What happens when you drop so many quotations is the book changes. It started out as more of a proof. Like I've found this thing and I'm, and here are, here's more proof. Here's more quotations. And yeah. when I removed the quotation it became more of a story,
0: yeah. you know, yeah. more of my yeah.
1: voice, which is what my, so I, I really recommend to to young scholars to reach, to try to write more in that way, to try to think of a broader audience. I mean, a dissertation is one thing when you turn it into a book, try to do that it's a challenge for all of us a big challenge but at a time when the humanities are in crisis at least in america when history departments are suffering um, i think more than ever we need to tell people show people how important history and intellectual history um, is so be brave um, take on big topics uh, don't get wrapped up in the scholarship you can do that in your dissertation Drop some of it, not too many name dropping in the text itself, and write yeah. for try to reach more
0: people. That that that's great. And now I also realize that I pronounce your name in the Swedish way, Helena rather than Helena, uh, w- which I, I think I can get away with since since we're both actually Swedish. Um, I hope so anyway. Um, Okay, so, so you've already gone in the direction of uh, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to ask you next. Um, so you've already answered the question I want to ask you next to, think, to an extent, but maybe you still have something you would like to add, because I wanted to ask you, uh, when you were researching the book, was there something you found that, uh, that surprised you um, in a particular way? And how did that change your the arguments uh, and the book to so something we already touched on, but maybe something? Yeah, yeah. You yeah.
1: Again, this. again. I suppose it was this. The big revelation was um, that the Anglo-American tradition is a back is is, mm-hmm. is, a, is a, something that yeah. is. I, I mean, I think all traditions, in fact, are constructions made after the fact, right? And uh, and so this is this was terribly. This was a big surprise. The big surprise was also Germany's. Um, influence. Um, I mean, France and Germany are, well, Germany is often said to have an illiberal tradition, right? No liberal tradition at all. France uh, in recent scholarship and up, up until recently has been said to have a, like a faulty, uh, something wrong with their liberalism. They did, and, and you read books and they'll say they didn't have a John Locke. You know, so, um, so this idea that, uh, that American Anglo-American liberalism um, is, is, is the, uh, the first, the ur liberalism, if you want, it was wrong and that was very surprising. And the other thing is what I, okay. And the other thing that's related to that um, was a revelation. I don't know if it was a surprise, but it's, it's this idea that liberalism has never been one thing that people have argued, there've been heated debates uh, among liberals about what it meant, not just that, that business about the two streams, and like what's the true liberalism, is it laissez-faire or interventionist, but also like how large should the electorate be, women or not. Yeah. There were people who were, who were quite racist and, and, uh, and promoters of eugenicism, one of the really dark sides of liberalism. And others said, no, you're betraying your principles. So this, and then that it's it evolved over time liberals were practical um, thinkers and often political actors in in parliaments um, who, lawmakers right and what i do in the book by the way is also read a lot of newspapers that's what i was doing word searches and word you know so journalists are part of the this, my story of course and kind of more regular people if you want and then finally i guess what i mentioned also is is um, is this uh, getting rid of the quotes, how difficult that was and how it transformed the book mm. into a kind of a different thing. A story as opposed to a proof is the way I kind of, you know, summarize it.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. And, and this was a book published um, in 2018, but it's already had a significant impact with many book reviews already, a lot of discussion. Um, so as the writer of the book, um, if you, um, how, what, what is it that you would like readers to take away? How would you, if you could decide uh, or influence, how would you like readers to, um, to read the book and what would you like them to take away from it?
1: Well, I think that the past can give us some, some per- perspective and also maybe even hearten us in one way, Heart, you know, give us some um, courage because liberalism has always uh, been something fragile. Uh, Liberals have had to fight hard. They've had really formidable enemies. Uh, all across you know or adversaries at least enemies is a big word but is a strong word but you know originally the throne and altar alliance who called them you know sinful it was a it was a plague it was a poison Um, uh, you know we think of today's debate as in civil we talk about it a lot on civil how rude people are being to each other uh, and how polarized uh, the political debate is at least in America And, um, and it's nothing compared to what was said in the 19th century. Uh, Secondly, I would say that um, the, the idea of illiberal democracy, although they didn't call it that, um that term came came quite a bit later and meant something different um liberal dem you know was they would not be surprised by the rise of illiberal democracy today the the rise of populism demagoguery they faced this almost from the beginning i there is a way that you can see and i think i make that argument that liberalism was invented it was conceptualized um, as a response to Napoleon's demagoguery and dictatorship. It was a way to prevent this this, this, um, this, constant danger that the people, and you know, they were no Democrats, they were not for universal male suffrage for a very long time, liberals, they were quite elitist. And the reason for that is they felt that cr- the crowd, um, the electorate, um, the, the the masses, um were irrational uneducated prone to violence and very susceptible to demagogues who would cater to their worst instincts and then uh, take over power um napoleon uh you know instituted universal male suffrage he ruled by plebiscite a lot trying to you know uh, go around representatives in in the chamber of deputies and then dismantling uh, everything liberals had had fought so hard for rule of law, um, uh, uh, freedom of the press, um, and uh, and such thing uh, used spies, used uh, propaganda. So all of this has a history, um, and and, um, and I think the other thing that we should take away from is that it's been constantly liberalism has constantly been reimagined reconceptualized uh, reinvented if you will liberals i think i said earlier have been practical have been reformers not these we've we focused a lot on these philosophers but really um, liberalism has not been one thing it has evolved because liberals have been very uh, very attentive to circumstances to because they were lawmakers because they were journalists and so on they're reacting to what's happening on the ground and they reconceptualize themselves that was new liberalism that's what it was is a new new way of of being true to the core principles of liberalism which is the love of freedom and generosity if you go all the way back to rome so that's it and i think that today with the situation this crisis that we are facing this existential crisis which is really serious We have to understand that it's always been a fighting faith. Uh, Liberals have been brave, courageous, and have had to fight against formidable obstacles. And they have known how to reinvent themselves. And I think maybe it's a moment that we need to think about a way to reinvent ourselves to address this problem we're seeing around the world.
0: That's excellent, um, Helena. And this would be a great place to stop but before we let you go, we have to ask you what you're working on now. So you described in the beginning of the interview how this work on liberalism um, has been growing out of your previous work on Rousseau and perhaps especially Constance. So, so how, where do you go from, from here?
1: I am actually going to be writing, and I started to think about uh, an intellectual biography of Madame de Stael. Madame de Stal um, is known as mainly as a literary figure. There's some new scholarship coming out showing all her uh, diplomatic and political activities. Um, I would like to take that further and really restore her as a founder of liberalism. Uh, she was a formidable uh, powerhouse at the time. She was an actor as well as a thinker and a writer. Um, she was, you know, the the, the famous uh, quote saying uh, at the time was that there are three great powers in Europe: um, England, Russia, and Madame de Staël. Uh, Napoleon was so frightened of her he kept exiling her. She ran a think tank that was a, a, actually a, a place of collaboration. She tried to put, hey, for us it's interesting. She tried to make Bernadotte uh, King, a constitutional King of. France, she conspired with the Tsar of Russia to do that. She went to Sweden, uh, right, to convince him to, mm-hmm. to do this. Um, she was unsuccessful, of course, but she was really a figure um, uh, is so fascinating in so, many, in so many ways. So I'd like to bring this out. I know it's, I'm going back in a sense to one person, but I do hope to write it in this, first of all, this readable way and then show her global influence, and the kinds of broad influences she had. And I think it's going to change our view of liberalism because again, we've been, we have been uh, lining up these canonical thinkers. If we include Madame de Stael, there's going to be more emphasis on emotions, on passions, on morals, how important these are because she was very concerned with that.
0: Fantastic. So that's going to be a book we're all looking forward to, and we're looking forward to uh, for for this debate about liberalism um, to continue. So thank you very much, Helena, for your time today.
1: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it tremendously.